Attention, all troops. He's alive. Alive. Welcome to the Rapnolis. sweet sound, isn't it? That was music to my ears when I was a little kid. I would usually only get to hear it on weekends, and then only if I could get one of my sisters to take me to a local arcade. And we had three arcades in my area. We might have had other smaller ones, but the three main ones were the Silver Ball, the Great Escape, and the biggest one of all of them, Fun and Games. Fun and Games was located at the Willowbrook Mall which is in, I guess, technically northern New Jersey. It was about a 40-minute drive from where I lived, and it was my favorite to go to because it was larger, and there was a Burger King next door, so I could get burgers, and then I could play video games. Now, the problem is, is that unless my sisters wanted to go to the mall, and they liked to go to the mall, I could never find my way up there. I remember one day begging my sister to take me up there. It's started in the beginning of the week. I really wanted to go up and play video games. I had saved $4.00. And my mother had promised that she would buy me lunch that weekend if I went up. I begged and pleaded, and finally one of my sisters relented. And the whole drive, she just did not seem pleased. She was going to do her shopping. She would eat lunch with me. But after she was done shopping, she would come and get me out of the arcade, and that was it. And I couldn't understand, why would anyone want to rush out of an arcade? Well, we went up, we got some Burger King, we sat and talked... We did some shopping, stopped by the pet pori, and looked at the puppies, and then went over to the arcade. She said, okay, you stay here, play your games, I'll come and pick you up on the way out. So I started playing games like crazy, I was like having a lot of fun. Maybe about 45 minutes later, an hour later, my sister came in and said, okay, let's go. I was doing really good on this game. I said, well, wait until this game is over. She rolled her eyes, she said, okay, I'll find you when you're done. I continued to play, and eventually died. I still had about a dollar left, and I really wanted to play, but I knew that if I started another game, she would know. So I went to find her. I couldn't find her anywhere. Then I'm walking past the Asteroids machine. It was right on the corner, and there were a couple people watching. They were watching my sister play Asteroids. I couldn't get over it. Here's this person who hates to go to arcades, yet she has a crowd around her. I kind of crept up and watched from behind, and she was doing really well. She played for about 15 minutes more, and she got the high score in the game. She turned around and was like, okay, you ready to go? Am I ready to go? I can't believe you're just leaving this out there. Here you are playing Asteroids and you want to run out? I said, well, can we play a couple more games? She gave me a look that said, I don't want to, but I'm your older sister, so I will indulge you. So then I went through my dollar quickly playing Star Wars. Two games, 50 cents a shot. On the way home, I said, well, I didn't know you liked to play video games. She just stared ahead. I said, well... We should come and play video games all the time. She goes, well, I, I do play video games all the time. I said, what do you mean? She goes, well, when I go out with my friends, we come to the arcade. It had not even occurred to me. 
I'm thinking I'm the only one in the family playing video games, but my sister's out every Friday night at the arcade that I want to go to. I sort of nodded my head. I thought, that's pretty cool. So, my sister did put on airs of being too cool for school, but maybe geekdom is more genetic than science has let us know. Over the years, I've seen my sister play video games on the Atari, most recently on the Wii, and I see that little competitive spirit. Despite the fact that we don't see each other enough, whenever I pass an Asteroids machine, I think of that time when I looked up at my older sister and thought, she's pretty cool. On today's show, we're going to talk about the game that confirmed my sister's coolness, Asteroids. We'll talk about the game's creation, the game's ports, a couple of its influences on pop culture, and we'll throw in a few fun facts while we're at it. We have an info pack show filled with lots of surprises, so without further ado, let's start the show. Oh, 
if you want to look at the origins of asteroids, you need to look back into the 1970s and at two things. The creation of a new gaming system called Cosmos by Atari. And secondly, the success of Space Invaders. First, a little bit about Cosmos. In 1978, Atari began work on Cosmos, which would have been a tabletop holographic-based gaming system. So work on that had begun in 78. Also at that time, a new game by Taito called Space Invaders had swept into America, and Atari was not happy because they had not made Space Invaders. So the people who were working on Cosmos, and by the way, Cosmos never came out. It was considered too risky at the time. I think there's only two working systems that exist nowadays. So it's 1978, and Atari engineering VP Lyle Rains is developing a game for the Cosmos that had the working title of Planet Grab, and it rendered 3D graphics. The game would involve players piloting through a solar system claiming planets by touching them. Now, 3D gaming was way off the charts for what Atari was hoping for, and the Cosmos would never happen. But even though the Cosmos was scrapped, Reigns didn't give up on the idea. He went on to discuss the idea with others, and his game would be further developed into a vector graphics arcade game. And the name of that game would be Asteroids. Dear Atari Anonymous, ever since my husband Luno returned from Earth with Asteroids, the new Atari home video game, he and the rest of the family do nothing but play Asteroids. Luno says Asteroids is good practice for his interplanetary flights. Tell me, dear Atari Anonymous, with everybody hooked on Asteroids, what on Earth is a poor Martian mother to do? New Atari Asteroids, now available for your home. Now, Atari knew it had a major hit on its hands and started pulling Atari employees off every other project to work on asteroids. When the game was released in 1979, their hunch and the pulling of people off other projects was rewarded because asteroids became a huge success. It's a simple game with a growing challenge rendered perfectly with sound and graphics that appealed to people in the late 70s and would continue to do so up until now. So Atari at the time had actually released another vector graphics game, their first, called Lunar Lander. But demand for the asteroids was so strong that they basically stopped making Lunar Lander and had everyone concentrate on asteroids. They go on to sell 70,000 asteroid units, which blew away the record set by Space Invaders at that point. And to this day, it is Atari's best-selling arcade game of all time. The game was so popular that it spawned some really enjoyable things, like the theme song that you heard at the beginning of the podcast. It also inspired a record that added a bit of story to the Asteroids world. It starts a little something like this. Hi, and welcome aboard the Cosmic Space Patrol ship Intrepid. I'm Captain Jim Stanton. You must be the new trainee they told me about. Yes, sir, Captain. Where should I sit? Right there in the co-pilot seat, kid. Wow. What's the mission, Captain? Asteroids, I hope? Maybe, but it's usually not that exciting. It's a quiet beat. No hassles. Nothing like the pirate lanes on the titanium freighter circuit. Oh, every once in a while, we might run across a pleasure cruiser or a beat-up old communications satellite that's drifted off course, but that's just about it. Golly, I thought it would be more exciting than that. It has its moments. Now, don't get me wrong. I like my job. Most of the guys I went to school with are punching out silicone chips. They're selling robots door to door. Not me. 
I've got this baby. And when I'm out on patrol, she's all mine. Forward thrusters accelerate from zip to half the speed of light in under 10 seconds. I've got enough photon torpedoes on board to turn Saturn into a hunk of Swiss cheese. Not to mention the shields, flip control, and hyperspace. This baby is loaded. Strictly state-of-the-art. How about a demonstration? I'd like to see the ship in action. Okay. Let me show you what she can do. Seatbelt fastened? Yes, sir. What are we waiting for? Let's go! Not bad, huh? Hey, what's the matter? You look a little green. Don't worry. You'll get used to it. So, tell me a little bit about yourself. How long have you been in the patrol? Five weeks, sir. Just five weeks? And they've already got you out on a patrol mission? The brass isn't wasting any time with you rookies, are they? Where are you from? I'm from the planet Earth, Captain. Well, I'll be darned. An Earthling. I've got a sister-in-law on Earth. Maybe you know her. Name's Zora237. She lives in Pan-Asia. I'm afraid I haven't met her. It's a big place, you know. Yeah, I guess so. So, tell me, what's new back on old Terra Firma? I saw on the commsat where that last climate control dusting the Euro Republic tried really backfired. <laughs> they were picking icicles out of the coconut trees. <laughs> that must have been a sight. How about those biogenetic farms? Those doctors are really doing some amazing things. I saw data on that new breed of insect they created that mines anthracite and reconstitutes it into pseudo-crystal as hard as diamond. Well, it's quite a place, old Earth, but you know what they say. It's a nice place to visit, but I wouldn't want to live there. <laughs> you know how it is with us space babies. Once you're born out here, you kind of get used to the zero G's and the wide open spaces. After one week on Earth, I'm as nervous as a protolian android in a jumpsuit. I hear they cleaned up the place a lot after the industrial techno freeze, and well, with the Afro Lab program, most of the endangered species are safe from extinction, but I still think I'd opt for the galactic settlements. I like it out here. Good stuff. If you're listening to this podcast, I cannot imagine that you have not played Asteroids. But if you have not, here is how the game is played. The objective of the game is to score as many points as possible. And you do this by shooting asteroids and flying saucers. You control a triangular ship that you can rotate left and right and shoot. You also have a thrust button that allows you to enact inertia on your ship, which eventually everyone has to learn to do when they play asteroids. The game also has another button called hyperspace. When you hit that, you disappear and appear in a random location on the screen. Using that button is risky, though, because you could come right into the path of another asteroid. Now, as you shoot each asteroid, it breaks into smaller parts, and all of those pieces have the exact same ability to destroy you. So as you destroy the larger asteroids, you also need to destroy the much smaller asteroids that it breaks into. I like to think of the game's audio as similar to the music of Jaws in that it's a heartbeat type of sound, which quickens as the density of the asteroid field grows. It is both frightening and at the same time, to a classic gamer, very reassuring. Once you've destroyed all the asteroids and flying saucers, a new set of asteroids appear. The number of asteroids increases each round up to a maximum of 12. The game is only over when you've lost all of your lives. 
Even though the game was seemingly worked on by almost every employee at Atari, the game had a couple of bugs in it, and a lot of those would be gamed by players trying to extend their game. The first problem with the game is that the maximum score is 99,990, which rolls over back to zero. At the time, I guess nobody thought that the game would be as popular as it was, so they kept the score low, thinking people would play it and move on. It seems to be a common mistake with a lot of early games that become hits. The small saucer in the game had behavior that gave rise to a strategy known as lurking. Because the saucer could only shoot directly at the player's position on the screen, the player could hide at the opposite end of the screen and shoot across the screen boundary while being pretty safe. This would lead to people being able to play almost indefinitely on a single credit. Eventually this would be addressed in the game's sequel, Asteroids Deluxe. A very famous exploit in the game was that no asteroids or shots could be fired at the scoring area, so players would hide their ship in the score area indefinitely and could shoot away at asteroids just about forever. The game technical overview. Asteroids is a vector game. This means that the graphics are composed entirely of lines which are drawn on a vector monitor, and the hardware consists of a standard MOS 6502 CPU, which executes the game program and the digital vector generator, as the 6502 was too slow to control both the gameplay and the vector hardware at the same time. The latter task was delegated to the digital vector generator. For each picture frame, the 6502 writes graphics commands for the DVG into a defined area of vector RAM, and then asks the DVG to draw the corresponding vector images on the screen. The DVG reads those commands and generates appropriate signals for the vector monitor. So there are commands for positioning the cathode ray, for drawing lines to a specific destination, and so on. Asteroids also has various sound effects, each of which is implemented by its own circuitry. There were seven audio circuits. Now get this, the main Asteroids game program uses only six kilobytes of ROM. Another two kilobytes of vector ROM contains the descriptions of the main graphical elements, the ships, the asteroids, etc., in the form of digital vector generator commands. And technical overview. Now, let's continue the Asteroids radio drama. Oh, yeah. Man, would you listen to that? The visual particle counter is going crazy. But I don't see anything out there. Neither do I. Maybe we'd better take a closer look. Hold on, kid. Here we go. At 72,000 miles per second, it shouldn't take long to find out what's going on out there. Red alert, red alert. Asteroid at 3.9 AX vector. Mass too large for spec scanner. Range, 31,000 miles off port wing and closing. Prepare photon torpedoes. Red alert, red alert. Well, kid, looks like you're going to see some real action on your first time out. Tracking readouts indicate this asteroid's headed on a course that will take it right through the Gamma Hydrofarm settlements in Quad 42. We'd better blast it to Kingdom Come right now before it causes any real trouble. We should have visual sighting in just a few seconds. My God! Look at the size of that thing! It's colossal! And it's headed right at us! Shields up! Confirmed, Captain. Shields are up. Rapid-fire torpedoes locked on target? Confirmed. Photon torpedoes locked on target. Fire when ready. Hold on, kid. 
Here we go. Fire torpedo one. Fire one. Look at that. We hardly made a dent in it. Fire two. Fire two. That was a dead hit. But instead of vaporizing, it's breaking up into smaller pieces. Look at that. There must be thousands of them. 4,683 to be precise, Commander. Suggest invasive maneuver to hyperspace. I've been keeping the shield on two-second on-off cycle, but they can't hold up forever. One millisecond too long, and the entire ship will explode. Okay, let's go for it. Hyperspace is risky, but it doesn't look like we have much of a choice. Switching to hyperspace in ten seconds. Nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, zero, hyperspace! Well, kid, we got out of there just in time. Another few seconds and one of those asteroids would have smashed our ship to pieces. Let's check the computer navigational system and find out where we are. Navigation report. Rapid scan of all memory banks show our coordinates do not correspond with any portion of the known universe. Further analysis underway. No portion of the known universe? What in blazes are you talking about? There must be some mistake. My error factor is 1 in 19 trillion. There is no mistake. Override update. I have found our position, Captain. I knew there had to be a mistake. No mistake, Captain. I used the chronological time scanner to locate our position. We are in the solar system of the planet Earth. But there is a slight problem. What's that? The ship must have encountered a time-space warp while we were in hyperspace. Astronomical calculations indicate we emerged from the time warp 607 years in the past. The year is 1983. Okay, we're back. Asteroids is one of those games that has been ported to many systems. The one that was near and dear to my heart was the one for the Atari 2600 that I saved my money up for and was very proud to buy and played it like you wouldn't believe. But it didn't stop there. It was released on the 7800 and the Lynx as well. A port was in development for the 5200 and was advertised as a launch title, but sadly it was never released. In 1993, a version was released for Windows 3.1 as part of the original Microsoft Arcade package, and in the 90s, new versions of Asteroids was made for the PlayStation, Nintendo 64, Windows, and the Game Boy Color. A game I really enjoyed on the Nintendo 64 was Asteroids Hyper 64. That was released in the very late 90s and had co-op mode, team mode, two-player split-screen. I thought it was a great update. In 2001, Infogrames released the Atari Anniversary Edition for the Dreamcast and PC, which included an emulated version of Asteroids. In 2004, Asteroids and many other classic Atari games were included on the Atari Anthology for both the Xbox and the PlayStation, and those both used Digital Eclipse emulation. On November 28, 2007, Asteroids was released on the Xbox Live Arcade. Asteroids is just about everywhere. It's on phones, and it's playable even in your browser. If you want to play, you just point your browser to the Atari website at atari.com, and it's at atari.com slash arcade slash asteroids. Now, let's continue the Asteroids radio drama. 
while on a routine mission, the cosmic space patrol ship Intrepid has encountered a strange time warp, which has plunged the ship 600 years into the past. The year is 1983. Well, there it is, kid. Your home planet. Wow, I never thought I'd get to see Earth 600 years before I was born. I'm afraid I'm not much of a history student. Let's ask old Chiprain what he can tell us about Earth in 1983. I do not compute the name Chiprain. I am the multilingual LEX-12000. Touchy today, aren't we? I was just joking. What can you tell me and my friend here about the planet down below? 1983 is a little bit before my time. I have already tabulated the information you request. Here is my status report on the planet Earth in 1983. This temperate and largely aquatic planet is inhabited by a wide variety of plant and animal life. The dominant life form is man. There are currently 4,551,000,000 humans on Earth. They live in the 166 countries and 49 colonies and territories on the planet. There is no central government as we now know it. Life on the planet is still largely primitive, although progress is being made at a steady rate. There are currently several dozen wars and conflicts underway. Most are territorial, although some are based on religious differences. Mankind is a stubborn species, and change comes slowly to this world. There are thousands of differing and equally valid cultures now functioning. Some have remained unchanged over the centuries, while others are changing even as we speak. I have assembled a collection of audio tapes that may give you a better picture of the varieties of human experience as they existed, correction, as they exist in 1983. So that's Earth in the 1980s. What a place. I think I'm glad I was born a little later in time. You know, it, it might be fun to go down and take a first-hand look at the planet. But I'm afraid it might cause a panic. They're bound to think we're a UFO and start shooting at us. Even if we could talk to them, they would never believe our explanation of how we got here. Besides, we had better start thinking about how we're going to get back to our own time. The ship has enough fuel for only three days. After that... It could start to get a little chilly up here. Captain Stanton, I have applied all my logic circuits to our problem, as well as a complete interface between my navigational and astronomical banks. The readouts today are somewhat less than encouraging. The random factor of the phenomena that created the time-space warp make any duplication of the event extremely unlikely. Excuse me, Captain. There is some new information coming in. The particle counter has picked up something in deep space. An asteroid of truly gigantic proportions. Its flight path will carry it on a course dangerously close to Earth. 
Any object this size would cause immense disturbances on the planet's surface, resulting in earthquakes, global flooding, and catastrophic loss of life. It would, in fact, create a doomsday situation. Can we destroy it ourselves before it strikes Earth? It is conceivable, Captain. However, it would require a direct hit. Anything less than a perfect shot would shatter the asteroid into thousands of huge chunks that would rain down on the planet. The results would be less dramatic, but equally fatal. How much time do we have? When is the asteroid due in this solar system? Computing. The asteroid will reach the outer perimeters of the solar system in six days, 17 hours, and 42 minutes. But by then it will be too late. The demolition of an object of this size within the solar system could cause a shift in the orbits of one or more of the planets. Not a desirable situation, Captain. Our best chance for success is for us to engage the asteroid in deep space. And what are our chances for success? Computing. Logic dictates that our success is a historical inevitability. We know by the fact that Earth exists in our time that we will be successful in saving the planet. The question is not, can Earth survive, but rather, can we? Well, what are we waiting for? Let's go for it! I'm punching in the coordinates that will put us on an intercept course. We should be within firing range in a few minutes. Stand by for ignition. Ready? Fire main thrusters! Okay, we're back. And now here's Jonathan with this week's Retro Rewind. Alright, all of you retroists, I decided to take a break from playing Asteroids and kick off the latest breaking news of the past with this week's Retro Rewind. Let's head into the silver screen in this week's Retro Rewind, and if you are stepping aside from your Asteroids, you are going to the movies and checking out The Incredible Shrinking Woman with Lily Tomlin back in 1981 in this cult hit. You are enjoying some great expectations and fearing those desperate measures. You are down and out in Beverly Hills and feeling forever young. You are getting pranked by the Jerky Boys, and if it was 1937, it was the first Charlie Chaplin talky film, Modern Times, being released. And remember, you could fly, you could fly, and believe in faith and trust in pixie dust, because Peter Pan from Walt Disney opened up at the Roxy Theater this week. In 1974, you have Mel Brooks' cult classic Blazing Saddles, and you had Videodrome. And the final movie in this week's Retro Rewind was one that all of us were checking out. It was Star Wars back in 1977. Now coming down from that epic sci-fi high, let's move on to the small screen with this week's Rewind Boob Tube. And this week on the small screen, while you were channel surfing, you were watching The Tonight Show starring Johnny Carson. And this week he was featuring guests Bob Hope and Hunt Hall. You had the Merv Griffith Show, The Ed Sullivan Show debuted The Beatles in this epic telecast. And Jack Parr, one of the original hosts of The Tonight Show, walked off from the show from NBC and it was later to be hosted by Johnny Carson. Now going back to 1952, 50% of Americans have now had a television set in over 25 million homes. The Smother Brothers Comedy Hour premiered on CBS and later shifted to ABC and then NBC. In 1988, let's get ready all of you Hulkamaniacs because the first primetime wrestling match in over 30 years 
was televised and Andre the Giant beat Hulk Hogan. In 1981, those pesky Brady Brides had the Brady Brides movie debuting on NBC. In 1950, you had What's My Line. You had the Honeymooners' second honeymoon television movie in 1976. And the very first soap opera TV show, Secret Storm premiered in 1954. You were surfing through the channels, you were flipping fast, you stopped because this is Tom Jones was playing This Week in the Rewind. You had Pebbles Flintstone and Bam Bam Rubble in their famous wedding. And Good Times, the spinoff from Maud, premiered on CBS TV. What's going on the dial while you were driving around in your Gremlin? You were sitting there cruising it in your Honda. In 1977, you had Fleetwood Mac's Rumors getting released this week. Frank Sinatra debuted on the radio's Your Hit Parade. In 1977, Wings released Maybe I'm Amazed, and Glenn Miller and his orchestra recorded the Tuxedo Junction. You had General Mills' Adventure Theater premiering on CBS Radio in 1977, and The Righteous Brothers, You Lost That Love and Feelin', hit number one. And if you are ready for the centerfold, the Jay Giles Band was ready to bring it on to you. And let's not forget Purple Haze getting recorded by the one and only Jimi Hendrix. In 1959, it was Buddy Holly's absolute last performance, and Jingle Jangle by the Archies hit number 10 in the pop charts. In 1964, the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand was number one, and it stayed number one for over seven weeks, and in 1944, the crooner himself, Bing Crosby, recorded Swingin' on a Star for Decca Records. And Ronnie's rap by Ron and DC Crew was hitting up the charts in the hip-hop world in 1980s. And in 1969, Jim Morrison was arrested for exposing himself at a concert. And finally, Pink Floyd, the epic rockers, premiered their live version of The Wall in Los Angeles. So all of you retroists, that is it for this week's Retro Rewind. If you have any information, tidbits, or contributions... Feel free to email me, jonathan at retroist.com. Now it's time to jump back into my bed tent, zip it all up, turn on my 13-inch black and white TV, and continue playing Asteroids. Back to you, Retroist. Now, Asteroids has been the subject, of course, of clones and bootlegs. One of my favorites is the one for the Vectrix, which was the subject of another Retroist podcast, and it had a game called Mindstorm built into the system. A great game on a purely vector graphics machine. Now, the stunning conclusion of the Asteroids radio drama. Now! Look! There it is up ahead! Look at the size of that thing! It's enormous! Captain of the starboard wing, a shower of smaller asteroids. I see them. Photon torpedoes ready? Torpedoes ready. Steady! Steady! Fire! Got one! Stand by Torpedo 2. Steady. Let her rip. Good shot, Captain. You cleared a path for the ship right through the middle of the asteroids. Main target, dead ahead. Now to find the point of greatest stress. I've only got one chance at the big one. Using my mass spectrometer, I have determined what seems to be the most likely spot to place a direct hit if you hope to vaporize asteroids. It will have to be fired at extremely close range, as close as 3,000 miles. That will give us less than one half a second to escape. It looks as if we're going to have to use hyperspace again. Heaven only knows where we might end up this time. Red alert, red alert. UFO dead ahead and firing. Shields up! Shields up, Captain. Photon torpedoes engaged. Fire when ready. The UFO is closing fast. Look out, he's shooting again! That was 
too close for comfort. Okay, overgrown pie plate, we're shooting back now. Gotcha! That'll teach you to fool around with the cosmic space patrol. Now, where's that asteroid? Sighted at 60 degrees port. We will be in optimal firing range in 11 seconds. I want a full barrage of photon torpedoes locked on target. Confirm, Captain. Countdown underway. Nine, eight, seven, six. Hyperspace mode on emergency standby. Good luck, Captain. Three, two, one, zero. Fire! Hyperspace! Now! This is Cosmic Space Patrol Headquarters calling the Intrepid. Over. Do you read me? Over. Come in, Jim. Please respond. Over. This is Jim Stanton, Captain of the Intrepid, reading you loud and clear. What's up, pal? Over. Jim, where the devil have you been? We've been trying to raise you on Spacecom. We're starting to get worried. Over. No reason to worry, Chief. Everything is just fine now. But the last few hours have been a little hairy. Last few hours? What in blazes are you talking about? You blasted off from base at 1300. That was only 45 minutes ago. Headquarters is right, Captain. Check the shipboard clock. Our second hyperspace escape thrust us ahead in time, but not quite far enough. We're still slightly in the past. You can say that again. If you insist, Captain. Our second hyperspace escape thrust us ahead in time. Hey, we heard you the first time, Chipbrain. I was only following orders, Captain. I distinctly heard you tell me to say it again. Forget it, friend. Besides, we've still got a full night's work ahead of us. We've got to find and vaporize that first asteroid without slipping into the time warp again. That's one mistake I don't want to repeat. Well, what are we waiting for, Captain? Let's go get them. We'll blast them out of the universe. We'll photon them all the way to... <laughs> hey, slow down, old buddy, before you pop a chip. You know, sometimes you seem almost human. Oh, no. What a dreadful thought. My logic circuits are far too advanced for that. You must be thinking of my uncle, the LEX-950. Computer. Yes, Captain? Let's go to work. And so Captain Stanton fired the main thrusters. And the mighty ship roared off through space in a never-ending battle for planetary safety. It's tough work, but then that's your job when you're a member of the Cosmic Space Patrol. With any classic game, the high score is very important, and if you've seen King of Kong, you probably know that the high score for classic gaming is kept by the Twin Galaxies Intergalactic Scoreboard. In November of 1982, 15-year-old Scott Safran of Cherry Hill, New Jersey, set the world records for asteroids by getting a score of 41,336,440. Wow. The story of Scott Saffron is interesting and tragic. 
He was born in 1967 in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. And as a teenager, he became obsessed with getting a high score in a video game. He eventually settled on Asteroids and could play for over 20 hours straight at his local 7-Eleven convenience store. Fast forward many years later, and they're going to celebrate the 20th anniversary of Asteroids. And Walter Day, who heads Twin Galaxies, wants to find him and congratulate him, present him with a plaque, all that stuff. But they can't find him. He even offers a reward of $1,000 to anyone who can find Saffron. Eventually, they find out in 2002 that Saffron had passed away in 1989 after falling six stories from his apartment balcony while trying to retrieve his cat. Tragic. In 2002, Twin Galaxies was able to get in contact with Saffron's family and had a posthumous award ceremony in Philadelphia to honor him. To this day, his record is unbeaten. He's still the champ. In 1982, Buckner and Garcia, who probably are best known for recording Pac-Man Fever and Do the Donkey Kong, recorded a song titled Hyperspace, which used sound effects from the game. And this was released on the Pac-Man Fever album. If you, if you bear with me a minute, I have my Atari 2600 Asteroids manual here. And they actually have a description of the story behind Asteroids in it. And I'll read you a little bit from their description. On a quiet, serene evening, the cosmic space patrol sets out for the usual night cruise through the boulevards of space. This beat was always the same, calm, no action, and no excitement. For some reason, this night feels different. Shortly before 0200 hours, some form of intergalactic material is sighted through the visual particle counter. The material is too large a mass to measure. It's drifting closer. Look out! It's a giant asteroid boulder, and it's headed straight for the cosmic spacecraft. The only chance for survival is to dodge the boulder or destroy it. Destroying it doesn't mean just breaking it up. It means vaporizing it. Small asteroid boulders are equally as fatal as large ones. Phew! The boulder just missed colliding with the cosmic spacecraft. But suddenly, the cosmic space patrol finds themselves surrounded by thousands of the deadly asteroids. The cosmic space patrol must act quickly to save their spacecraft and spare their lives. The spacecraft is equipped with photon torpedoes, hyperspace, shields, and flip control. The Cosmic Patrol is highly trained to handle the situation. Could you do as good a job as the Cosmic Space Patrol? How would you protect yourself if you were caught in the deadly asteroid belt? This is your big chance to fly throughout the dimensions of space and fend against asteroid boulders. The longer you survived, the more space hazard you'll encounter. Wow. Asteroids is not going away. Hold on to your hats, folks, because in July of 2009, it was revealed that Universal acquired the rights to make an Asteroids movie. Matthew Lopez, who had worked most recently on Bedtime Stories and Race to Witch Mountain, will be writing it, and it will be produced by Lorenzo D. Bonaventure. Perhaps they'll start their story from the Asteroids manual description, or maybe the radio drama we've been following along with, or perhaps... They'll just strike out on their own, and we'll see a fun story of a squad of teenagers who by day destroy asteroids to save the planet, and by night are in a cool rock band. Well, I can dream. Thanks for listening to the show. For more retro fun, drop by the website at www.retroist.com. You can follow me on Facebook and Twitter. I'm at facebook.com slash retroist and twitter.com slash retroist. 
Thanks to Jonathan for providing another great retro rewind. If you want to hear more from Jonathan, he has his very own podcast called Rotting Flesh Radio. You can find that at rfrpodcast.com. He's celebrating his 200th episode, so why don't you drop on by and give it a listen. If you're a fan of horror and the haunt industry, I think you'll get a real kick out of it. Just a reminder, if you downloaded this podcast off of iTunes, I'd really appreciate it if you maybe drop by, give it a quick review, maybe just a rating if you have the time. Every little bit helps. Thanks for listening to the show, and I hope you have a great weekend. against asteroid boulders asteroid boulders huh this has been a retrospect production goodbye